keep your Bible open to Hosea 3 as we continue our sermon series through the book of Hosea. James Montgomery Boyce published a book about 30 years ago about the 12 minor prophets. It's a very good book that I've returned to several times since I got that book, maybe 10 years ago or something. In fact, his book has influenced my own thinking about the book of Hosea and other minor prophets. But in that book, James Montgomery Boyce says something bold, maybe something surprising. He says that Hosea chapter 3 is the greatest chapter in the Bible. Now, I'm not sure I'd be quite ready to say that myself, but maybe by the time we're done today, you'll have a little more sense of why he would say that. This brief chapter has three parts, the calling in, verses, in verse 1, the drama in verses 2 and 3, and also the explanation in verses 4 and 5. We'll begin with the calling. Verse 1, and the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man. And is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So two weeks ago, we looked at the beginning of this story back in chapter 1, verse 2, when Hosea was first called to go and, quote, take a wife of whoredom. So he married a wife named Gomer, knowing that she would be unfaithful to him. The whole thing was a living parable meant to stand as the backdrop of Hosea's prophetic message. His life was meant to be the backdrop or the story through which his words and his message would be heard. And now we arrive in chapter 3. Is my microphone super echoey still? Yes or no? No? Yes? No? Okay. It's just echoey to my ears. That's okay. Now we're in chapter 3, and the text does not use the name of Gomer anymore, but the most natural reading of Hosea 3 is to assume that we're still talking about Hosea's wife, Gomer, who has left Hosea and sold herself to other lovers. We should recognize that at this point in their relationship, the law of Moses would grant Hosea the freedom to divorce his wife and then to quietly move on after all of her infidelity. We need to say this clearly. Measuring by biblical standards, divorce would have been a totally acceptable option for Hosea at this point. And yet, what is the Lord calling Hosea to do in chapter 3, verse 1? We'll see the shock value of the Lord's call a little more clearly if we think for a minute about what Justin Timberlake would do if he were in Hosea's shoes. 
In one of his hit songs, Justin Timberlake explains what he would do when he says, you don't have to say what you did, I already know, I found out from him, and now there's just no chance with you and me, there will never be. The bridges were burned, now it's your turn to cry, so cry me a river, right? (laughs) What would Justin Timberlake do? He would say, now the bridges are burned, it's your turn to cry, so cry me a river. Or more simply, in words that he sang earlier in his career, baby, bye, bye, bye. But Justin Timberlake is actually way more gracious than Jasmine Sullivan. She tells us what she would do if someone cheated on her in one of her songs, which goes like this, I bust the windows out your car. (laughs) and no it didn't mend my broken heart I'll probably always have these ugly scars but right now I don't care about that part I must admit it helped a little bit to think of how you'd feel when you saw it you'll probably say that it was juvenile but I think that I deserve to smile I bust the windows out your car (laughs) if someone is unfaithful to Justin Timberlake he says cry me a river baby bye 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 If someone is unfaithful to Jasmine Sullivan, she says, I bust the windows out your car. And even the law of Moses and the teaching of Jesus would tell Hosea that after his wife's infidelity, he's free to divorce her and move on in life. But now we feel how radical the Lord's call for Hosea is. Hosea chapter 3 verse 1, go again Love as the Lord loves. After the pain of rejection and the pain of unfaithfulness, Hosea is called to love again as the Lord loves. See, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, God leads his people to stick it out and fight for a healthier marriage. Even when infidelity has caused great damage. Sometimes God leads Christians to stick it out in a tough friendship and fight for a healthier friendship even when sin has caused great damage. Maybe I'll take a step away from the text and talk about a challenge that I've faced in my own life. I want to talk for a minute about the experience of being hurt by the church, being hurt by other Christians. I'm not talking in my own life, I'm not talking right now about scandalous abuse or anything like that. If safety were involved, maybe I'd say some things differently. I'm just talking about the wear and tear of being in a church family with other imperfect people who, just like me, only see in part and give imperfect advice and sometimes have bad attitudes and sometimes are self-righteous and sometimes do not reflect the heart of Jesus Christ very clearly. For my part, people in the church, people who call themselves Christians, 
have said rather vicious things to me sometimes. Sometimes in my own living room, in my own home. If I kept a meticulous list of every time Christians have not acted like Christians, it would be very easy to become disenchanted and jaded about the church. At times, my wife Katie and I have had to be honest with each other and just say, sometimes it's hard to show up on Sundays and love again after the way other people have acted. How do you do that? How do you show up at church and love again when people in the family of God have not acted in a way that reflects God? How do you love again when the church or people in the church have hurt you in the past? It's a relevant question because so many people really have been hurt through their experience in the church. Listen, over time, Katie and I have discovered that nothing, nothing is more helpful than reflecting deeply on the heart of Christ for His church. Knowing how Christ loves the church empowers us to love again. Knowing how Christ loves the church, knowing full well how sinful she is, empowers us to show up again and love again, even when the hard roads of confrontation or forgiveness or restoration are needed. Listen, this text should not be used to say things that the Bible does not say. This text should not be understood as telling you that there is no situation in which divorce is okay. It should not be understood as saying that seeking safety is unacceptable. This should not be used to push you back into an unsafe relationship that is causing real harm. But having said that, I wonder if some of us need to be exhorted and challenged or even empowered by what God is saying here in Hosea chapter 3 verse 1. I wonder if the Lord is intending to stir up something in your heart maybe toward a specific person in your family, maybe toward a specific person in your past, maybe toward a specific person in this church family, maybe with respect to the church of Jesus Christ in general, I wonder if God's Spirit through His Word is challenging some of us afresh to go and love again as He loves That's the call that we read in Hosea chapter 3, verse 1. It's a call to love again as the Lord loves. That brings us to the second part of this passage, what we might call the drama in verses 2 and 3. 
So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or, be, or belong to another man. And so will I also be to you. Now, different translations sound sometimes very different in these verses because the Hebrew is challenging to translate here. It may be the case, as the NIV, for example, uh, suggests, it may be the case that Hosea is asking her to refrain from sexual relations with anyone, even with him, at least for a time. And let's be frank, maybe that would be the most helpful way to love somebody who has recently been a sex worker. Maybe that would be the most helpful way to love a woman who has been trafficked in order to give her space to experience renewal without even being touched, at least for a season. There are aspects of this verse that are difficult to translate, but a couple of things are clear in the unfolding drama of these verses, no matter how we translate these verses. Two essential elements of this drama are as follows. First of all, through sin, she has become a slave. And second, in love, he is willing to pay the price and do whatever it takes in order to win back her heart. Chapters 1 and 2 told us about Hosea's wife and the path she followed. It's kind of like the parable of the prodigal son, except it's the living parable of the prodigal wife. Hosea 2.5 suggests that she set out in search of a happier life with more wine, more food, more luxury, better clothing, in love with the world. Enchanted by that vision, she walked away from her first love, from her husband. But notice where that path has taken her by the time we reach chapter 3, verse 2. Hosea spares us some of the details, but we understand enough. It appears that she is now so deeply in debt that she has become a slave who is sold from one man to another. And as Christians, listen carefully for a second if you would, we don't hear her story and simply say with self-righteous superiority, wow, that immoral woman is really getting what she deserves. No, as Christians, we hear this story and we say, slavery and the sex trade are heartbreakingly terrible. And yet that is a picture 
of where sin would leave every one of us if we do not return to the Lord. Have you begun to notice in your own life the way that sin promises happiness but then leaves you a slave? Whether it's a passion for alcohol or a passion for pornography or a passion for some other aspect of the sex industry or even if it's a passion for money and all the security that savings can buy. Have you noticed how sin promises us happiness, but it leads us into addiction, emptiness, and slavery instead? You see, as unflattering as this picture of God's people is, remember, Gomer is a picture of the people of God. As unflattering as this picture is, it's here to wake us up to the seriousness of our own sin. Those temptations that promise life and joy and happiness, they will leave us empty and enslaved in the end unless we return to the Lord. This is here to keep us from imagining that our sin is no big deal. This is here to call us to turn from our sin and return to the Lord. But praise God, Gomer's story does not end in slavery as a result of her sin, does it? Why not? Why does Gomer's story not end in slavery as a result of her sin? Why not? Because her story has a hero whose mercy is more. We can imagine this moment that's described in verse 2. Her sin has led down this terrible road into slavery. And now it's time for her to be sold from one man to the next. Maybe she squeezes her eyes shut because she doesn't want to know who will pay for her this time. Maybe she desperately wants a glass of wine because she doesn't want to think of how she'll be treated. She hears a man say, I'll pay a fair price. Fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. But this time she recognizes the man's voice. It's the voice of the man she married years ago. It's the voice of her first love. It's the voice of the man she left. Why on earth is he here of all people? Why on earth is he paying the price? Perhaps the voice of shame screams inside her head that because of her guilt, she is not worthy of his love. And with the voice of shame screaming inside her head, 
Perhaps she wonders, why is he back? Maybe he just wants to own me now. Maybe he just wants to have me as a slave. Maybe he just wants to have his way with me. But after he has paid the price himself, he makes his intentions clear. With shocking grace, he explains, this is not about shaming you. This is not about revenge. This is not about heaping guilt on your head. This is certainly not about sexual exploitation. I have paid the price to set you free from all of that. And then he continues, I only ask that you stay pure. I only ask that you remain committed to our covenant. I only ask that you remain faithful. And I pledge that I will remain faithful to you. See, he doesn't pay the price to have her as a slave. He pays the price to win her heart. He doesn't pay the price to leave her in her sin. He pays the price to free her for a renewed life together with him. This is not another disenchanting experience of what the world calls love. Rather, this is a wonderful picture of heavenly love. See, he pays the price himself, and he will do whatever is necessary in order to win her heart back. And this is where we need to make the connection. Listen, this is a picture of the Lord's heart for us as his beloved. knowing full well how we have turned and gone astray, knowing full well how we have gone after other lovers, knowing full well how we have not loved Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, He committed to pay the price Himself. And not just to have us as distant slaves, but to draw our hearts back to Him. He paid the price to set us free from our shame, to set us free from our guilt, and to win our affection back forevermore. He paid the price so that He might be our God and so that we might be his forevermore. You see, this passage will not allow us to think cheap thoughts of either our own sin or his amazing grace. 
This passage will not allow us to think cheap thoughts about our own unfaithfulness or his amazing faithfulness. This passage will not allow us to think cheap thoughts of our own wrongs or of his amazing love. This passage teaches us to sing with joy. Our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. And when it comes to this theme of repentance, when it comes to this theme of returning to the Lord and obeying him in our lives, I wonder what motivates you. Some of us maybe have this picture of God as a shepherd with sheep, with a rod and a staff to protect them and to steer them. And that is a true and accurate and biblical picture of how the Lord relates to us. Maybe some of us have a picture of God as a judge who knows all the facts and all the data and who will take it all into account. And that's true. It's a true and accurate and biblical picture of what God is like. Maybe we have a picture of God as a king who has the right to give directions in his kingdom. And that's true. It's a true and accurate and biblical picture of who God is. But if you do not know God as a lover, if you do not know God as a heavenly husband, if you do not know God as one whose heart overflows with love for you and who intends to know you and be in a relationship with you forevermore, then you're missing something vital, something precious that is revealed in order to draw our hearts closer to Him. Romans chapter 2 verse 4 says that His kindness leads us to repentance. Hosea 3 tells us something perhaps even more striking. It tells us that His immeasurable love woos us to repentance. Do you see why the greatest commandment really is in God's design? You shall love, that's relationship language. You shall love the Lord your God. You see what he's after in this whole thing? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. The goal is not simply cold external obedience. The goal is not to make you merely a slave off in the distance. The goal is a renewed relationship of heartfelt, loving devotion, like a renewed relationship between a faithful husband and his dearly beloved and fully forgiven wife. If the Lord is not only a shepherd or a judge or a king, but if the Lord is like a faithful and loving husband, how might that need to change the way you think about prayer? 
How might that change the way we think about worship? How might that change the way we think about obedience? See, if part one calls us to go and love again, as the Lord loves, the drama of this story gives us a picture of how the Lord loves, and it invites us to find a home, to find the place where we belong in the story of His redeeming love for us. But we still need to look at part three, Hosea's explanation of what's going on in verses four and five. Look with me again, if you would, at verse four. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. When Hosea first spoke these words, there was a painful season ahead for the people of Israel. A painful season in which many things, some good and some bad, would be taken away. But why? Why would the Lord allow the Assyrian army to defeat the people of Israel? Why would they be taken away from the good things of sacrifice and worship at the temple? What's the goal? Verse 5. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. It's a curious phrase, and we'll come back to that. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to His goodness in the latter days. The goal repeated for emphasis is that the people will return, come back to God, seek Him. When the former comforts are taken away, what is the Lord's goal for His people? To win back their hearts. As I've pointed out over and over, and as I'll continue to point out over and over, the goal of the book of Hosea, what God's Spirit is doing more than anything else as we read through this book, is God's Spirit is calling us back to Him. Are there other things we need to pay attention to in life? Sure. But nothing is more important than this, that we return to the Lord. And yet, how do we find Him when we seek Him? How do we find the Lord when we seek Him? There's a really important clue planted right there in the middle of verse 5. It's the name David. See, by the time Hosea lived, King David had died about 200 years earlier. Why then does Hosea describe seeking the Lord by seeking David, who died 200 years earlier? It's artfully woven into verse 5. 
For the sake of emphasis, in the Hebrew language, it uses a literary device that, that we call chiasm in order to emphasize not only seeking the Lord, but specifically seeking David. Why seek David and why is this emphasized here in verse 5? My answer is that it's like a skilled NFL quarterback throwing a deep pass. He doesn't throw the ball to where the receiver is standing. He throws the ball to where the receiver needs to go, right? And in a similar way, Hosea is not communicating to where his people are standing at the very moment he's writing. He's throwing his message out into the future where God's people need to place their hope, where God's people need to go. You see, listen to me for a second. Even though David had died 200 years before Hosea wrote these words, Hosea knew that if the people of God will seek and find the Lord, they must find him through King David's, great King David's greater son. You see, Hosea wants us to read his message in a Christ-centered way. When we talk about reading the Scriptures in a Christ-centered way, it's not like we've got this cool thing that we're stamping on the Bible. Do you see, Hosea himself throws the ball down the field and says to the people of God in his own day, you've got to look further ahead. You want to seek the Lord? You want to find Him? You want to know restoration with your heavenly husband? You've got to look further down the field. For the Christ, for great David's greater son. And in this way, we have a certain advantage, a certain vantage point that Hosea and the people of God in his day only stood on their tiptoes and longed to see somewhere down the field. Why? Because we have caught a glimpse of great David's greater son. We have seen the great bridegroom in his first appearance. We have caught a glimpse of our truest love, our heavenly husband, Jesus Christ, who loved the church and gave himself for her. Who loved the church and did not shrink back from paying the price, even when that price was his very own life. We have seen the heavenly husband, great David's greater son, Jesus Christ, who loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, not just leaving her in her sins, but purifying her to be a people for his own possession. He loved the church and he gave himself up for her that that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. You see, in Jesus Christ, we meet the Lord who paid the price for us. 
for our freedom, for our deliverance from slavery to sin. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we meet the Lord who paid the price for us once for all time and who will do whatever is necessary to draw our hearts back in loving devotion to Him. And yet, Hosea, the Holy Spirit-inspired quarterback who has thrown the ball down the field and said, you need to look forward and hope. Hosea still has a message of hope for us today. Because while we have seen the Lord Jesus Christ arrive, and while we have seen Him give His life to pay the, the price once for all time, we too, like the people of God in Hosea's day, still wait. We still long. We still hope for His return. We still look forward to that day when these words ring in every corner of the universe. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to Him for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb. And his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear, Revelation 19 says, for the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And then the angel of the Lord says in Revelation 19, write this. In other words, don't forget it. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. You see, this is how we learn to love again as the Lord loves, by seeing and savoring His wondrous love for us. This is how we find our place in the great drama of redemption, by acknowledging the reality and the seriousness of our sins. And then, by receiving His ever-faithful love for us, demonstrated in the price that He willingly paid when He laid down His own life as a sacrifice for our sins. And this is how we seek the Lord, by rejoicing that though our adultery is great, His mercy is more. We rejoice that somehow in the wonder of His mercy, we, 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 knowing full well how we have turned away from Him, we are the blessed who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. So, in light of His wondrous love for us, Let's love others. Let's find our place in the story of redemption. And let's celebrate in hope of that day. Let's celebrate that we 
are invited to that great wedding feast.